Good morning. This week, we focus on one of agriculture's biggest concerns. Yes, it could be the weather affecting harvest. It could be Brexit and ongoing uncertainty. But no, the biggest issue for many in farming is rural crime. The NFU launched its Rural Crime Manifesto this week, lobbying MPs on the issue. So today we're dedicating much of the programme to the problem, with a special report later on what's being done to try to stop hair coursing. First, here's the NFU's Deputy President, Manette Batters, on that rural crime manifesto. Rural crime is sort of the number one issue. So Brexit is is hugely important, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of concern. But rural crime is what really does have farmers, I think the whole of the public, very, very concerned. And, you know, we, we feel there has been a lack of resource on rural crime. Hair coursing has been absolutely out of control, but general on farm crime has been out of control too. So this is all part of what we see as the repositioning of, you know, rural Britain matters here. It cannot just be left to one side and forgotten about. And that goes on to sort of digital connection and everything as well. Flooding, you know, our day job is is relentless. And it's all about repositioning where the sector sits in the eyes of government. And we feel we're the solution to, to much of this. And it's about having a new relationship with government as we leave the European Union and start to become UK centric you know how how do we have that voice for rural Britain that's heard at all levels in particular with rural crime. Manette Batters there she launched that manifesto at Parliament last Monday. Well Matt Soans will be here with that detailed report on hair coursing in a short while. Uh, first though our weekly reports from Open Field and before that our agronomist Sean Sparling. Morning Sean. Yes morning Sean nice to get British summer back isn't it 19 degrees high wind rain every 20 minutes much better than those 28 30 degree days where you sit in the garden with a beautiful warm savannah wind, watching the wildebeest sweeping majestically across the plains at Market Raisin. Um, I hope we get a few more of those hot days. I'm ready for a holiday, um, as you can probably tell. But the hot temperatures will help to ensure we get a good harvest 2017. It's been a very difficult and trying season this year, and I think farmers deserve a bit of luck when it gets to this time of year to make sure they get these crops in in good order. There's nothing worse than a wet harvest. So let's talk about harvest. Um, Some people are talking about glass glyphosate in the media once again being bad for us and it should be banned pre-harvest absolute nonsense please believe me when i tell you that it is absolutely safe to be applied pre-harvest we use it at a growth stage of 30 percent moisture or less in wheat or peas and there's a reason for that if we go before that we destroy yield we end up with shriveled grains we don't want to do that so we always time it at 30 percent moisture or less When we do that, it means the crop is physiologically ripe. And because glyphosate is a translocated material, it can't actually get to the grain. In the case of winter wheat, where remember the 30% moisture or less is when you push your thumbnail into the grain and it holds that thumbnail imprint. Once you get to that stage, each grain is enveloped in uh, the glooms, which is like a little envelope, and that protects them. The glyphosate cannot touch the grain directly because it can't translocate through the gloom. 99.5% of the glyphosate stays in the field. So for these people who are saying it's dangerous to us and we're taking in glyphosate in our bread, you would actually have to eat 300 kilograms of wholemeal bread every single day. That's a massive amount of bread, a third of a tonne, for the rest of your life to still get no effect from the glyphosate. The salt would kill you long before then. Let's get things in perspective. Glyphosate, when it's applied pre-harvest, is a management tool. It is not 
a desiccant. We use it for a reason. We use it when we have to. We use it where we have to. And we use it to make sure you don't get nasty weed seeds in your food, which are toxic to you. We do it so that we don't get weeds encouraging diseases like ergot in our crops. We do it so that you don't get grubs and bugs on all the muck. We do it so the farmer doesn't have to spend an absolute fortune drying his crop because of sweating, because of grass and broadleaf weed matter that goes through the combine gets in the shed and we do it so that we don't get mycotoxins building up from natural sources because of that wet that's why we use glyphosate and it is far safer than any of those things i've just mentioned getting into your food so let's just get a bit of perspective on this glyphosate is not a desiccant Diquat, on the other hand, is. We use diquat at a different growth stage, 45% moisture with diquat. We use it in peas where we're trying to kill them very quickly, and that's what a desiccant does. It stops them as soon as you spray it. Within five days, the crop's finished. Um, and it's important you get your growth stages right, because 45% moisture means the pods at the top of a pea crop will be fleshy, slightly pitted, they'll still be green, and the seed will split inside them if you squeeze it. In the middle pods, they're pitted, crinkled, yellow, becoming paper-like, and the seed will be rubbery. That means you can squeeze it between finger and thumb without splitting. That is the stage the peas in the top pods want to be if you're going to use glyphosate, because that is around 30% moisture. And the bottom pods will be yellowy-brown, paper-thin, and the seeds will be hard and you won't be able to split them. That's 45% moisture or less. If you go earlier than that, you end up with shriveled peas, because the immature pods at the top mean the peas within them are immature and that means you get shriveled peas, you get lower yield, the crop takes a lot longer to dry out therefore the advantage of any desiccation is lost and the horn will collapse because it won't have lignified because ligni lignification happens once you get to 45% moisture or less. By the same token, if you leave desiccation too late, so you get down to 30% with diquat, all the advantage of the earliness of desiccation is lost and you'll lose the peas from shedding out of those bottom pots. So keep your water volumes up with a desiccant like uh, diquat because you're, it is purely contact. It's not uh, translocated. It will only kill what it touches, therefore coverage and application is crucial. Water volume's up to 500 litres if you've got a thick crop with a lot of weeds underneath it. Keep the water volumes down to 200, 250 in a thinner crop with few weeds. But if you're going to try and desiccate it, you need diquat. If you're going to harvest manage it, you need glyphosate and check with your agronomist um, to make sure your timings are correct for both because they are very different animals. And also remember, before you go putting wetters in with diquat on peas for processing, or for human consumption, check with the processor first because they can stain the peas and you don't want that. Um, similarly with winter wheat, we've just touched on it, 30% moisture, that's when you would go. And you harvest sort of 7 to 14 days later and it's more likely to be 14 than 7. Now the other thing that's happening with the way the weather has been is not only is potato blight still rampant out there, you need to be on top of that. Mix and match your chemistry to make sure no one strain of blight is uh, becoming dominant in the fields. That's an important thing to do. If you're getting to the point of death, then flail them off 48 hours later, get something like carfentrazone ethyl on. Speak to your agronomist about rates and timings. Once you get the tubers to the right size, stop them dead in their tracks. And the other thing which is happening is nutrient deficiency once again showing up. Magnesium deficiency in sugar beet is absolutely rampant out there. And because we're now starting to find rust in sugar beet, now would start to be the time 
for the first fungicide application includes some bitter salts, cheap and cheerful source of magnesium, some manganese. They're cheap and cheerful, they're cost pence, and you will only do good with those things by putting them into sugar beet. So yields, I'm hearing a few. Oilseed rate varies somewhere around about 4.2 to 4.4 tonnes to the hectare of oilseed rape. A lot of seed, but slightly smaller than normal is about what I'm hearing. And also winter barley. Is there a difference between hybrid and conventional in terms of yield? Not that I'm hearing at the moment and not that I'm seeing at the moment. So we've a long way to go. It's early days in harvest, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the gods are kind to us and things go with a swing. <laughs> Let's hope so. Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. With our weekly update from Open Field, it's Chris Spratt this week. A good start to harvest, Chris? Yeah, very much a stop-start beginning to harvest, with many growers still to put the combine in the field. But hopefully a better week forecast, and we will start to see a more widespread uh, beginning to harvest. I've seen a few samples to date, with bushel weights on the first cut winter barley. It's better than last year, but nothing astounding. But we must stress it's very early days. Again, uh, a degree of uh, yield variability, but of course I think we'll see that through all the crops this season as the drought in the spring is bound to have had uh, affected uh, some soil types more than others. As far as the wheat market's concerned, well, weather for the US and the Canadian spring wheat area continues to be hot and dry, and that's still causing concern. But the market uh, seems to be gradually acclimatising itself to that fact. Whilst the US Midwest maize belt is nervously eyeing a higher pressure ridge, which uh, will coincide with a critical pollination period, and that could impact further on our markets one way or another. Of course, in the States at this time of year, the weather forecast can dictate the direction of the market. The Australian and Ukrainian crops uh, are still in the grip of drought, whilst in parts of uh, Europe, including France, Germany and the Baltic states, well, they're getting unwanted rains, which could affect the quality in the market where quality could be king internationally, and of course, we have had a stop-start beginning to our harvest as well. The Russian wheat forecast seems to grow by the day, and the reported increase looks to be offsetting at least some of the perceived losses elsewhere. Of course, their problem will be the limitation on how much they can physically ship throughout the season. So on paper, no issue with quantity of wheat available as yet. World-ending stocks still around about the 260 million tonne mark. It's the quality side internationally, again, that may be a different issue for some countries. From the UK's point of view, the most important question will be whether we trade at import or export parity, and this will very much depend on yield, particularly as the AHDB have recently reduced their view on the UK wheat plantings down by 3%, which is 49,000 hectares or 121,000 acres in old money, and that knocks something like another 400,000 tonnes off the wheat crop figure, if that's correct. Don't forget we also have a smaller carry-in figure than we had last year at this time. The other factor being quality, a good quality crop, may well as it did last year open the doors uh, for UK wheat uh, exports while allowing cheaper feed grains into the UK extremities to replace it. If we have a big crop on the on the flip side uh, of only feed grains, then we need to price ourselves in to, uh, to stop those feed grains coming into the UK. All seed rape, well that's been a slow start, yields variable, but I do seem to be getting uh, quite a few people telling me they're somewhere around about one and a half tonne to the acre. Growers seem to be storing rather than selling, hopefully uh, looking for better values forward. Harvest pressure in Europe uh, is, is there certainly, um, but how long that will last we'll have to see. Sawyer in the States is finding support again on the back of the dry weather. The winter malting barleys we've seen, again, early cut samples are variable and now it's such a small part of the market with the main emphasis on the spring drilled varieties, which are a way off yet to see any volume to make a judgement. As far as prices are concerned, feed wheat for harvest 138 to 141, with November 142 to 145 and a pound a month carry after that. 
Group 1 premiums nominally quoted around the £12 to £15 mark at the moment, with November 2018 feed wheat prices similar value to this year, around about £140 to £145. Feed barley for harvest, £113 to £116, with November £118 to £120 plus a pound a month. Out of harvest, the better quality spring barley premiums are £25 to £30, with winters £10 to £15. We'll see rate for harvest 303 to 306 for immediate movement, but we could see that alter quickly once the harvest rushes out the way, with those that can wait for a buyer's call market looking nearer to 310x, with November 17 at 313 to 315. Uh, new crop beans, 157 to 160 for harvest, with a theoretical £15 premium for springs for human consumption. Well, hopefully next week, Sean, we'll have uh, more quality updates to come, uh, certainly over the next couple of weeks as harvest progresses. Hopefully so. Chris Spratt from Open Field. As we heard earlier, the National Farmers Union has this week published its Rural Crime Manifesto. But what can be done with one of the biggest issues for farming, especially now we're at harvest, uh, that problem of hair coursing? Matt Soans has this special report. I'm in the heart of the Fens with Spalding farmer Andrew Branson. He's just one of many farmers here who have direct experience of the damage hair courses do. We're a few miles out from the farm in the fields. Uh, we've got a smashed metal gate here. Uh, what's happened here? Uh, this is an example of where courses were pursued by ourselves and in an effort to escape have just barrelled straight through this metal gate, destroying it and ripping the post foundations out of the ground. This is a common thing. Oh, very common, yeah. And it's, um, as we've discussed, it's affecting not just farmers and landowners now, but residents of nearby residential property. Um, Suddenly, a vehicle drives through their garden, across their lawn, and out of their uh, domestic gates, um, it's starting to affect everybody in the rural area. Yeah, and it's a huge problem for you. You've got 5,000 acres, and... You previously been told to sort of harden up your defences by the police, but it's an impossible task. It is really in the Fenland area because so much land front uh, frontage is, is adjacent to main roads, and without digging ditches a mile long and four feet deep, it's it's just practically impossible. On our way back to the farm office, Andrew shows me some of the damage to his crops. It's getting close to harvest time, but you can still see faint track lines in the barley. Here, people had driven directly across the fields, destroying hundreds of pounds worth of plants before they even had the chance to grow. They basically do what they want to do, and in their eyes, none of us, none of the police, are going to get in their way and stop what they're going to do. So they'll destroy property, drive over fields, crops, um, anything to give them their day of pleasure um, trying to catch hairs. How often does it happen? And so do you see the same people or is it...? Yeah, we often see the same people, yeah. They're, they're, not, um, they're not afraid to come back or if we see them at, at one point in the day, they can often be seeing the same people very close by at the end of the day, so they're not exactly um, deterred from, from leaving, even if they're caught or, uh, or, or hassled. It must be quite scary, but also quite frustrating, because if someone's doing damage to your crops... Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, absolutely, yeah. It's more and more money that's being, you know, thrown yeah, away. absolutely, yeah. And it's just, 
It's just blatant anarchy going on in front of your very eyes. It's a problem that affects farmers in many parts of the country, but the fence is a big draw for courses. The land is flat, open and easily accessed. It's a naturally difficult place to police. In 2011, the National Wildlife Crime Unit found that more than 60% of all hair-related crimes in the country take place in Lincolnshire. From September last year to early April, Lincolnshire police received 2,007 reports related to the crime. Half of those were in the South Holland and Boston area alone. The area was a target for courses pre-ban, but the 2004 Hunting Act seems to have changed the nature of the crime. Gone are the people who pursued the sport as a tradition. Those who go hair coursing now are often described as hardened criminals, with tens of thousands of pounds alleged to be changing hands in bets on dogs. It's also become apparent they're increasingly violent. There are many horror stories. Andrew Wilson is from the NFU in Lincolnshire. The hair courses do intimidate local farmers and members of the rural community, and we have one member who very recently told us that he was too scared to leave his house to go to church on a Sunday because he knew the hair courses would be there and, uh, and he felt he had to be there to sort of defend his property. I've heard many stories of those working in agriculture being threatened, verbally abused or even forced into hiding by courses who target their land. There have been cases of arson with farmers losing tens of thousands of pounds worth of equipment and crops in one go. Even when they are confronted by police, they are difficult to deter. I'm taking your photos now, look. Have a smile, have a smile. Because listen, listen, taking the cars for no reason driving down the road. What is the matter with you people? Hey, seriously. These courses are having their vehicles seized by officers in Cambridgeshire, but as you can hear, they are no less belligerent. In fact, confrontations with the police, including high-speed chases along narrow country roads and fields, are part of the draw of the now illegal sport. Lincolnshire police have previously been accused by farmers of not taking the crime seriously enough or not having the resources to adequately take the courses on. Andrew Branton again. Even communication systems have been woefully inadequate in the past from from radios to telephones that don't link or don't have the range or the um, the connectivity within control room to offices on the ground, etc. There's been some fairly glaring loopholes in the system. In 2009, the force launched Operation Galileo, which specifically targets courses during the season. A small but highly specialised team of officers were created as part of the operation in 2012. However, just three years later, that team was axed. The size of the county was cited as one of the reasons, and the job was reassigned to community policing teams. The number of incidents involving courses shot up around that time. In the South Holland and Boston area, in the 2014-2015 to season, when the unit was in operation, there were just 395 incidents reported to the police. The next season, that figure tripled to 1,186 incidents. At the time, Chief Inspector Jim Tyner admitted that the unit being cut may have given criminals the impression that the force no longer saw the issue as important. Since then, we've seen a few new faces in policing in the county. Good morning, I'm Bill Scaly. I'm the Chief Constable of Lincolnshire Police. The new Chief Constable, along with the recently elected Police and Crime Commissioner Mark Jones, have been working to come up with a new plan to tackle hair courting. After meeting with concerned farmers in February, they launched a new rural community safety strategy. Bill Skelly explains. We're making sure that as an organisation we're preparing for uh, the next uh, s- hair coursing season as it is described 
Essentially, this is criminal activity. It's serious and it is organised in many uh, respects. Uh, and this community safety strategy, through its use of prevention activity, better gathering of intelligence uh, and enforcement, um, is designed to have a reinvigorated approach to how we deal with that particular issue. Information packs have already been given out to farmers. They provide contact details for local officers and advice on protecting land and crops. They also include a comprehensive guide on where hair coursing lies in respect to the law. It gives advice on what to do when confronted by people trespassing on farmland, as well as how to collect evidence that could be used in court. The police are also getting their hands on new equipment as part of the operation. This small surveillance drone is a recent addition to the force's arsenal. I spoke with Superintendent Mark Housley about the new kit. As a rural police force, you don't actually have or haven't had access to off-road vehicles in the past, but now you do. Yeah, do you know, many of our officers say, can you, can you give us some different equipment, some better equipment? The new chief constable has come along and he said, look, you're a rural county, what do you need? Clearly you, sh- you need 4 by 4 vehicles, and we do. Uh, he's invested in quad bikes with the PCC. We've got a drone, which makes absolute sense uh, that we can use modern technology uh, rather than pursuing people across fields we can actually use a drone that uh, goes in the sky collects the evidence uh, and allows us then to to uh, prosecute offenders um, so there's lots of things happening in the force around equipping our officers training them and offering them some clear leadership which is really positive so it's a lot easier with you know that drone to capture someone you know running across a field or hair coursing or whatever on camera as evidence yeah I, you know absolutely initially when, when people mention drones you think oh that's interesting and, and for me I'm, I'm not a luddite but we think oh okay is it a gimmick but actually when you think it through what we're doing is is actually giving ourselves a capability this drone will fly away from the base station we wouldn't do this but we'll fly up to four miles it'll allow us to actually sit over somebody film them committing crime um, and capture that evidence that, that's playable in a court that demonstrates and proves the offence. Why wouldn't you do that? The alternative is our officers running across muddy fields. We've looked at last year's figures and the information we've got from our community. We can plot uh, their favourite locations, we can plot repeat victims, we can plot who the offenders are, we can plot what vehicles they use, and we can plot how they get into the county and how they leave the county. So with all that information and intelligence, it's not just a matter of throwing loads more resources at a problem. It's actually understanding the problem and tackling it from a problem-solving approach. Operation Galileo has been beefed up too. Last September, Lincolnshire police announced they'd be partnering with forces in Cambridgeshire, Norfolk and Northamptonshire to target criminals across the entire Fenland area. It means suspects can no longer flee across county lines to escape county police forces. They've also been zeroing in on the key asset of courses, the dogs, which in some cases can be worth as much as £10,000. Last season, Lincolnshire police seized 31 dogs, many of which were left behind by criminals at the scene. So, have the force turned a page here? Will any of this help put courses off visiting Lincolnshire? Andrew Wilson from the NFU is encouraged. It wasn't well joined up before and there didn't seem to be a strategy for hair coursing and uh, things seem to sort of be a little bit muddled in their general approach. But uh, I have to say that uh, both uh, the Police and Crime Commissioner Mark Jones and uh, Chief Constable Bill Skelly, um, since they've been in post, well, Mark's been in post for a year and Bill Skelly has been in post for four or five months now, uh, both of them have uh, acted on everything that they've uh, said that they're going to do and they are taking it very seriously and uh, the, uh, you know, the the proof of that is in the investment they've made but not only the investment, the actual strategy work that they've done to work alongside uh, their new resources. Farmer Andrew Branton is a bit more sceptical. I think in the last 
six to 12 months, they have upped their game and they are um, keen on capturing these people, securing uh, convictions via good evidence capture. The missing link in the chain now is the court system. The judiciary are frankly completely behind the curve on the size of the issue that, that this is in the rural community. And only two weeks ago, the Boston Magistrates Court prosecuted an individual for hair coursing, but the fine was so pathetic that it serves as no deterrent whatsoever. And I think it's immensely frustrating and, and frankly insulting to the police, the farmers, all the people that were involved in securing that conviction. It's pretty insulting that the magistrates um, impose such a low tariff that it really serves as no deterrent to that defendant or anybody else. We want to see stiffer fines, much more power and an action with seizing the assets that these people have, the assets of, of vehicles, dogs, anything that they need to go about this crime. Um, and at the moment, that's just not there. Given the thousands of pounds changing hands in betting on the dogs, many farmers feel small fines are just a slap on the wrist. In a recent case, 28-year-old Arthur Gaskin of Tolbar, Doncaster, was fined just over £300 after being found guilty of hair coursing. Local police and crime commissioner Mark Jones believes the force will get better at securing prosecutions. If you want to tackle crime, crime itself is, is a mark of failure. We want to prevent it. So that's the first thing, is using intelligence to prevent criminal activity in the first place. But it's actually about making sure that we train the officers that will be sent to these incidents so they know which bits of legislation they can use. And equally, it's for us to speak to the um, Crown Prosecution Service and magistrates to help them understand the impact these things have on rural communities. So sentencing is appropriate um, to the kind of impact it has on rural communities. With the official coursing season about to get underway, we're yet to see the impact of the renewed focus Lincolnshire Police have on hair coursing. It remains to be seen where new kits like the drones and off-road vehicles can help capture the vital evidence needed for a conviction. But farmers can help. Andrew Wilson from the NFU has this advice for anyone who spots a hair courser. First call of response should always be to call the police and, uh, and also monitor the crime in progress. If you can get the registration plate and a, a description of the vehicle, uh, then that will be very helpful. Use a smartphone to get it and pass that on to the police. There are some WhatsApp groups out there uh, for farmers and uh, and they are so passing those details on in the direction of travel of the vehicle uh, so the police can hopefully catch up with it because we appreciate there isn't a always a police car around the corner so uh, but do report it first of all and then try and get as much evidence as you can on your smartphone but obviously be safe as these people are sometimes uh, very aggressive when confronted. Andrew Wilson from the NFU ending that special report from Matt Soans. The Farming Programme five-day forecast. It's not perfect for harvest, I can tell you that to sum it up. Uh, Some rain today could be heavy in places, highs of 18 Celsius. The wind from the west at 10 to 15 miles an hour. It should be drier overnight, clear skies, temperatures down to 10. The wind from the northwest, 10, gusting at 20 miles an hour. And then tomorrow, patchy cloud, possibility of a shower or two, highs of a cooler 16 Celsius. The wind from the north-northwest, 15 to 20 miles an hour. Dry with clear skies again Monday into Tuesday. Temperatures down to 11 Celsius. The wind still from the north-northwest, 10, maybe 15 miles an hour. And then uh, Tuesday itself, the possibility of some sunshine in the afternoon, 19 the high. The wind from the north at about 10 miles an hour. 
The middle of the week, it starts off dry, though there is some heavy rain forecast come Wednesday evening. Highs of a slightly warmer 21 Celsius for Wednesday. The wind more from the south at about 10 miles an hour. And then the latter end of the week looks a little calmer. Possibility of some sunshine, warmer as well. Highs of 23 Celsius with that wind continuing from the south. So that's the forecast. It's Farm Safety Week this coming week. The message, farm safety, it's a lifestyle, not a slogan. Do please take care if you're busy with harvest. So easy to make mistakes when you're tired or maybe rushing to uh, beat the weather. Anyway, until next week's programme, have a safe week's farming.